Hello and welcome to Immunity, your immunology podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Bianca Redenbaugh. And I'm Lara Dungan. And this is the podcast where we tell you all about the most exciting research that's going on in the world of immunology. So grab a cup of tea, sit down and relax, and we'll fill you in. We're here to talk about what research is being done, what new treatments we should be watching out for, and what's happening in the immunology labs and clinics all around the world. Don't forget, as always, if you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at immunoteapodcast at gmail.com. That's immunotea spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at immunotea. Don't forget that's T-E-A. Now, I'm delighted to introduce our guest for this month. Professor Emek Kojaturk earned her medical degree in Hacettepe University in Turkey before going on to complete her dermatology residency in Gaztepe Teaching and Research Hospital in Istanbul, where she went on to found the Dermato Allergy Unit in 2007. Emek is a member of the UCARE Network Steering Committee and currently holds the title of Professor of Dermatology at Koch University School of Medicine in Istanbul, as well as being a clinical researcher at the Institute of Allergology in Charité University in Berlin, Germany. Her principal areas of clinical interest include urticaria, contact dermatitis and atopic dermatitis. Emek, you are very welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and it's also a pleasure to be speaking about urticaria. Thanks for your uh, invitation. Well, we're really delighted to finally cover this topic because it's something we wanted to talk about for the whole last year. I think probably the best idea is just to start with the basics for anyone who may not have heard of this and then we'll get a bit more complex. What is urticaria and how common is it? Okay, uh, so urticaria is a disease which is characterized by itchy wheels and swellings all over the body. So it's a very burdensome disease and it has its name from nettle stings. Uh, you know, when nettles touch your skin, they lead to immediate stinging, itching and red bumps in the area, the plant exposed. And so urticaria's name is coming after this plant because this plant is called urtica dioica. So the urticaria patients have the itchy wheels that disappear and appear uh, in other sides of the body. So they are transient lesions and they uh, don't stay longer than 24 hours. So urticaria is a transient condition. And when we talk about urticaria as a disease, then we need to talk about acute and chronic urticaria. Uh, when urticaria lasts uh, shorter than six weeks, then we call it as acute urticaria, and it's a very common condition. And it is observed in one in five people uh, through their lifetime. But when urticaria lesions continue to occur longer than six weeks, that means now urticaria became chronic. And this is a rarer condition and approximately one in four acute urticaria patients evolve into chronic urticaria. And chronic urticaria, thankfully, is not common as acute urticaria. It is seen 1% in the general population. So chronic spontaneous urticaria, it's a condition that you and we deal with all the time, but it's a condition that a surprising number of the general public and even physicians have never heard of. Can you talk to us about this and its association with angioedema? 
Yes, sure. Uh, so uh, maybe uh, people are more familiar with the definition chronic urticaria, but chronic spontaneous urticaria is a subtype of uh, chronic urticaria. And it is the main subtype of chronic urticaria that constitutes 75% of all chronic urticaria cases. And in chronic spontaneous urticaria, we do not find an obvious eliciting factor for the formation of the wheels. However, there is the second subtype, which is called the chronic inducible urticaria. We have obvious eliciting factors such as cold, heat, stroking the skin, or vertical pressure that leads to uh, appearance of uh, sudden uh, urticarial wheels. Angioedema, uh, on the other hand, is uh, deeper swelling which occur in the deep dermal layers or subcutaneous tissue or mucosa, where we see swellings on the lips of the patients or sometimes periorbital region, on the face and sometimes on the hands. But these are not itchy uh, in contrast to wheels. Wheels are very itchy. But uh, the, these deep swellings, which are called angioedema, they have a feeling of tension and they tend to disappear up to 72 hours, where for the wheels, we expect them not to stay longer than 24 hours. Uh, the wheels only stay 6 to 12 hours and disappear without leaving a mark. But angioedema takes 72 hours to disappear. And angioedema can occur almost half of chronic spontaneous urticaria patients, where uh, in chronic inducible urticaria, we do not see angioedema that common. So one of the things that's extremely challenging about being a physician dealing with this condition is explaining this diagnosis to patients. How do you do this? How do you go about explaining to a patient what's happening to them? Yes, very, very important question. Thanks for uh, this question, really, because I think it will help a lot of people when they uh, hear this answer, I believe. I hope so. So if it is acute urticaria, it is really very easy uh, to tell the patients what is this condition. We say the, to our patients that it is possibly the reaction of their body to an infection or a painkiller or antibiotic. Uh, because in acute urticaria, these are the main uh, conditions that cause acute urticaria. And uh, we tell the patients that it will disappear around a week. But if it's chronic urticaria, then the patients are usually very anxious. They are confused. They come to us with many wrong information and with a lot of frustration. Then we explain uh, the disease like um, it's a disease of mast cells. So mast cells are maybe we can call them allergic cells. Their function is uh, generally to protect the body from pathogens by releasing its chemicals to the tissue and destroying the pathogens. But in case of urticaria disease, these cells continuously release its contents and then these contents dilate the blood vessels and lead to itchy swellings on the skin. So in another saying, we can say that their mast cells uh, are continuously angry and they are bursting out their ingredients that lead to these recurrent swellings all over the body. But then uh, we need to tell the reason that why are these cells angry. There are some factors that are making these cells angry. Uh, the reason why they become 
an angry cell could be linked to genetic tendencies in some patients. And uh, the most possible cause is the presence of autoantibodies in their blood. What is an autoantibody? is a protein that is produced by the body to patients own antigens own proteins so in another sense the body is attacking itself so the chronic urticaria patients has autoantibodies in their blood that continuously activate their muscles but it is not also uh, enough to have antibodies but then they have to have some triggering factors such as the patients face a stressful event or uh, they encounter an infection, for example, COVID infection. We have seen a lot of urticaria patients, acute urticaria patients mainly, and sometimes medications, for example, non-steroid anti-inflammatory medications such as diclofenac and also, for example, aspirin can also cause the appearance of these chronic urticarial conditions. Thanks for explaining that, Emek. So chronic spontaneous urticaria is commonly referred to dermatology and immunology and specialists, but we know that a lot of cases can be dealt with successfully in the community. So what advice would you give to primary care physicians when they encounter patients who might have chronic spontaneous urticaria in terms of diagnosis and the initial management? Okay, thank you for this question. Yes, it is really a very common disease. And the good news is almost half of chronic urticaria patients get well in one year. But for others, unfortunately, uh, it takes approximately six to 10 years for the urticaria to go. And uh, on the other hand, thankfully, half of chronic urticaria patients are treatable by primary care physicians and do not require extensive testing or very sophisticated treatments. We have very good treatment guidelines for the management of chronic urticaria, especially the latest one is the IACI guidelines that was published in 2022 in Allergy Journal. There, our colleagues can find guidance on how to manage chronic urticaria patients. As a short summary, they first need to tell the patients that generally there is not a serious reason for chronic urticaria. So I think that is, that is the most important uh, part because the patients are really very anxious about what's happening to them and they are usually looking for underlying causes where they can't really find. They are, they are like doctor shopping. They are going from testing to testing, doctor to doctor, but they can't find anything. So they are very uh, anxious. First of all, I think the most important duty of the physician is to comfort the patient by telling that this is uh, usually not linked to a serious underlying condition. And also, another point is uh, to tell the patients that it is mostly an autoimmune condition and the best lab workout to do is to check for thyroid autoantibodies. When urticaria is appearing every day for hours, it is impossible to suspect from an allergic cause. Since uh, but this is the main, you know, uh, the patients always think that this is due to some food or some drugs, uh, but it is really not the case for chronic urticaria. Since when it's an allergy, then it is very 
obvious because it appears the wheels and angioedema appears in minutes to a maximum of one hour after ingesting a food or drug and it lasts a maximum of a few hours and it should be episodic it can't be every day so it should appear when the patient gets in touch with that allergen so in chronic urticaria we usually see the urticarial wheels every day lasting for hours and hours so it's uh, impossible uh, for chronic urticaria due to uh, allergies so if it's episodic then the physicians can suspect allergic conditions so uh, this was the first point to tell the uh, patients and uh, another important point is uh, to tell the patients that chronic urticaria never leads to anaphylaxis so uh, it's an important uh, point because when the patients had swellings on their lips due to chronic urticaria, then they immediately go to emergency and they fear that they get suffocated. Uh, so it's important to tell the patients that chronic urticaria doesn't lead to uh, anaphylaxis. And another important point is uh, tell the patients that half of the cases are treatable with antihistamines. And another important point is to select non-sedating antihistamines because non-sedative antihistamines do not have a lot of side effects and their uh, duration of effect is long and uh, one time daily taking is uh, usually enough. And uh, with these antihistamines, it's also important uh, to give the antihistamine daily, not on demand. Some of the patients uh, take it on demand, but it doesn't work like that. It should be taken daily. And if one dose is not enough, then we have to up dose to two folds and then to four folds because uh, chronic urticaria more often uh, requires higher doses of antihistamines. Emek, just to come back to what you said earlier about how chronic spontaneous urticaria never leads to anaphylaxis. Why is that? Is it You said mast cells were involved. Is it only the mast cells or the skin? Or what's the reason that they don't get anaphylaxis? Yes, yes. Very important question. And it's always discussed in our uh, meetings, but nobody knows the answer of this. <laughs> Interestingly, I think there are a lot to find out in chronic urticaria pathogenesis. But what we know for sure is uh, it's a mast cell mediated disease, uh, but we also have other cells involved because when mast cells degranulate its contents, then uh, many cytokines are uh, released uh, in the tissue. And these cytokines call other cells such as basophils, neutrophils, eosinophils, and uh, T lymphocytes. Uh, so also, um, when these uh, cells come, then the, uh, these cells lead to the duration of uh, the lesions, longer duration of the lesions. That is the point that separates urticaria from anaphylaxis or from a very acute allergic reaction because there are cells and these cells lead to sometimes different appearance of the wheels, like uh, some uh, for example, when eosinophils are dominant in the uh, tissue, in the wheel, then the urticaria wheel may last longer and it may have a bruising appearance. So these cells also make the uh, urticaria appear different and last longer. 
Emic, that's really interesting. I'm wondering who gets this disease. What subgroups of people will get this disease? Do children get it? And is it different in children? So, yes, that's another important question. But urticaria doesn't really differentiate uh, between people. Everybody can get the disease from every age. But if you ask me the typical patient, it's a 40-year-old female. Previously, it was believed that children mainly have acute urticaria, but not chronic urticaria. But it turned out that it's not true. And children also have like the same percent prevalence of chronic urticaria. And it's interesting that uh, in children till puberty, till uh, 12 years of age, there is no sex difference. So the female dominance starts after puberty. But chronic urticaria in children behaves differently than adults in uh, such a way that it is uh, more easy to uh, treat chronic urticaria in children because it is more responsive to antihistamine treatment than the adults. They require less omalizumab treatment uh, than adults and uh, autoimmune conditions are less uh, commonly seen in pediatric chronic urticaria patients. That leads to a better uh, prognosis of the disease. So Emek, you said that the typical patient is a 40-year-old female. So why do you think this is a female-dominant condition? Like, what are the reasons for that? Is it because of higher levels of autoimmunity, hormones? Are there other factors at play? Yes, that's a very good point. And this is one of my favorite topics. But still do not know how to answer this because... There are a lot of things going on. I can only hypothesize that it is probably due to hormones, uh, which I mentioned about it uh, in the previous question. So uh, first of all, uh, the sex difference appears after puberty. And uh, secondly, we, we performed a, a project among the UKR network and uh, we found that urticaria gets better during pregnancy, and the third point about hormones is urticaria gets worse in one third of patients during premenstrual period. So these are the clues that uh, there can uh, be a hormonal background. But we uh, surely need prospective studies, maybe with hormone levels and also with disease activity uh, chasing so we need further studies and also females have more autoimmune thyroid diseases and also more psychiatric comorbid diseases which also increases the risk of having chronic urticaria in our latest study uh, which we collected data from the cure registry this is a urticaria registry all around the globe we found that chronic urticaria is not only more common in females, but it is associated with more severe disease, more treatment refractoriness, and more comorbid diseases such as psychiatric disease. Thank you so much. That's so interesting to think about the comorbidities. I suppose then the key question is treatment. You've touched on this a little bit with um, the IACI guidelines and antihistamines, and, and you mentioned omalizumab as well. Maybe you could summarize for us, what is the treatment algorithm? How do we treat this condition? Yeah, so as I uh, mentioned before, uh, for urticaria, the golden standard of treatment is, of course, antihistamines. But what kind of antihistamines? 
the guidelines uh, recommend to use non-sedating uh, new generation, second generation antihistamines. And the antihistamines should be taken daily, not on demand. And uh, sometimes when the patient is not responding to standard dose of uh, antihistamine treatment, then we need to updose uh, the antihistamine uh, dosage. Uh, up to first to two folds and then to four folds. So the guidelines suggest us not to use sedative antihistamines due to their uh, various side effects, uh, but to use uh, second generation antihistamines. And if we look at the algorithm uh, provided by the uh, international EIQ guidelines, uh, we see that uh, it, it, there are uh, only three boxes for treatment. The first box is uh, antihistamines and updosing antihistamines. When the patient is not responding to uh, antihistamines, then the second option is to add omalizumab treatment uh, to the treatment. Omalizumab is an anti-IgE autoantibody, which is given as monthly injections, subcutaneous injections, and it really provides good uh, benefits. It provides control in uh, almost uh, 70 or 80% of the patients treated. But the uh, problem with it is uh, in, it needs to be continued till the uh, disease is gone. So we can't give an exact injection uh, number for the treatment of the disease. So uh, this is the main question that patients are asking us. How long will I get the injection? So we, we tell them that uh, after they have six injections, then we check if they are having urticaria symptoms. And if they are not having any uh, urticaria symptoms, then we uh, start opening the intervals of omalizumab injections. First, we uh, do five weeks, then we do six weeks, then we do seven weeks. And after they do not have any wheels, uh, after 12 weeks, then we uh, quit uh, omalizumab treatment. And in patients not responding to omalizumab treatment, the guidelines suggest if the patient is not responding to standard doses of omalizumab, which is the 300 milligrams, then the guidelines suggest to updose omalizumab up to 1,200 milligrams. But in my practice, I updose up to 600 milligrams. And if the patient is not responding after six months of 600 milligrams treatment, then I quit omalizumab treatment, and as suggested by the guidelines, I switch to cyclosporine treatment. But uh, this is a minority of chronic urticaria patients because with omalizumab and uh, antihistamines, we can treat almost three-quarter of the patients, more than three-quarter of the patients. So for the patients that don't respond to omalizumab, is there a way to predict who will and won't respond to it? Yes, this is a very important point, which emphasizes the importance of precision medicine. Yes, this technology is improving and there must be different medications that is tailored to specific needs of the patients. But sadly, 
that is uh, not the case for chronic urticaria, since the guidelines suggest one treatment algorithm for every patient. But there have been a lot of efforts to find biomarkers that indicate a response to certain treatments in chronic urticaria. For example, for omelizumab, there have been a lot of studies for omelizumab, but the only reliable and uh, that is found in uh, many studies is the total IgE level. So I can say that if the patient has total IgE level lower than 40, then the response to omelizumab in this patient might be poor or may show up later than the patients with higher IgE levels. So for omelizumab, the main biomarker is total IgE we have in our hands. For cyclosporin, I can say that uh, autoimmune patients which are shown by uh, basophil activation test positivity or low IgE are biomarkers for a better treatment response. It's good to know that there are at least some biomarkers. And something that we definitely can't do a biomarker for is the mental health side of chronic spontaneous urticaria. Can you touch on this a little bit for us? Are there any useful treatments that maybe can target the disease from this point of view? Yes, very important point. Yeah, I, I wish there are there were targeted treatments, uh, but maybe there will they will be on the way. We will see it. But this is a very important topic and sometimes neglected topic. This is a major comorbidity of chronic spontaneous urticaria. Every one in third of the patients with chronic spontaneous urticaria has a psychiatric comorbidity, more commonly depression, anxiety, and obsessive compulsive disorder. But uh, one point is, it's not surely known if the psychiatric disease appear before or after the disease appearance, since the disease also causes a lot of psychological burden on the patients and it makes their uh, life more difficult. And on the other hand, there are also studies that show childhood trauma or stressful life events six months before the appearance of urticaria uh, that show that these are more common in chronic spontaneous urticaria patients. So these comorbidities or events can uh, trigger appearance of urticaria in these patients. So it is important that these comorbidities should be uh, certainly considered in the management of the disease and they should also be managed uh, on on the other hand, on the other way around while treating the disease in the uh, treatment algorithm. Since uh, in one of our studies, we found that the frequency of depression in omelizumab non-responder patients were higher than the patients uh, that responded omelizumab treatment. So that means that if we manage the depression in those patients who did not respond to omelizumab treatment, maybe they would give a better response to omelizumab treatment. So this is an important point. And uh, also, uh, I saw some studies that target the, these uh, psychological conditions comorbidities in these patients. There are some uh, antidepressant treatments that have been tried, but not very specifically for uh, urticaria. 
And uh, I also saw some uh, well-being modalities such as mindfulness and other techniques that were found uh, to provide some relief uh, for a chronic urticaria patients. So, uh, yeah, many, many new uh, techniques are appearing all around the uh, literature. So it's good to take a look at on these. So whether it be the medication we talked about or things like mindfulness, it seems that most treatments are focused on the relief of symptoms. Are there treatments that maybe aim to treat the underlying condition or try to change the disease course? Yes, that's an important point. And really, we are chasing for cure of the disease for sure. But now, uh, currently, we only have symptomatic treatment. We know that hives come back approximately six weeks weeks after omalizumab treatment, eight to 12 weeks after we quit cyclosporine treatment, and a few days after antihistamine treatment. So now we don't have any treatments that provide cure for the patients. But with the new treatments that are coming on the way, maybe we will be speaking about uh, at least longer remission for the patients, or maybe some of them will uh, provide cure for the disease. We will see. Well, you've hinted at them, so now you're going to have to tell us about them. What are some of the new treatments that go beyond antihistamines, omalizumab and cyclosporin? Yes. Yes, as I mentioned uh, earlier, with the treatments that we have in the guidelines, we can uh, treat three quarters of the patients. And uh, then we have a uh, uh, 15 to 30% of patients that still uh, lack treatment uh, options. But uh, good news is uh, many new uh, medications are coming. They are being tested in clinical trials. And maybe I can mention a few of them. The closest one is uh, the uh, remibrutinib study. It's uh, really going very fast. It's a Novartis uh, medication, remibrutinib. And uh, it is a BTK inhibitor. BTK is a, a molecule that is uh, needed for the signal transduction in mast cells. So if there is no BTK, then the mast cells do not degranulate. And uh, so uh, we do not have wheels occurring around. And also BTK is also found in B cells. And uh, when there is no BTK, then the B cells will not produce autoantibodies. So uh, BTK inhibitors have a dual mechanism of action in chronic urticaria, and maybe it, they can be helpful in uh, both endotypes of chronic spontaneous urticaria. The endotypes are autoallergic and autoimmune endotypes, and uh, remibrutinib will probably be effective in both endotypes uh, of the disease. And in the uh, 52 weeks uh, studies, there were not uh, really uh, serious uh, side effects different than uh, the control group. So it seems to be a safe and effective medication that we are looking forward to have. Uh, another one is Barzolvolumab, which is a kit monoclonal antibody. And it also provides very good results. It provided very good results in phase one studies. 
with inducible urticarias called urticaria and symptomatic thermographism, uh, 100% of the patients uh, responded to this treatment and the uh, treatment effect lasted for uh, two months. So it was a really interesting and exciting uh, study. And uh, of course, we are looking forward to hear about the phase two studies of Barzolvolumab. Another one is Lirantelumab, which is a cyclic 8 autoantibody that silences mast cells and eosinophils. And it was also studied for both chronic inducible urticaria and chronic spontaneous urticaria in a small population of patients. And it uh, also showed to be effective in omalizumab non-responder patients. And dupilumab is also in phase three trials. And I think dupilumab seems to be uh, more useful for chronic spontaneous urticaria patients who has also uh, type two inflammation uh, comorbidities. So finally, Emek, and I think you've answered a lot of this with the new treatments, but what else, what else do you feel is the most exciting work coming down the line in this field from your work or the work of others? What should we be looking out for? Yes, thanks for this question. Yeah, Urticaria, really, we have a lot of questions to answer and I know many, many centers uh, are making a lot of uh, studies and there will be uh, many publications on the pathomechanism because uh, the discovery of these new medications that are working on uh, chronic spontaneous urticaria opens new horizons in the pathophysiology of the disease. So there will be a lot of uh, studies uh, which shows new underlying mechanisms, I'm sure. But uh, currently, uh, I can say that I think we need to learn more about uh, the behavior of the disease according to the underlying endotype. So uh, the treatment responses uh, that will appear uh, in uh, different endotypes of the disease. So uh, from the uh, phase studies that are continued now, I would like to learn exactly on which type of chronic spontaneous urticaria all these medications will be beneficial, especially for, in particularly in which endotype they will work more. Uh, the first uh, question that I need uh, to be answered is this. And uh, of course, there are uh, many studies going on. We are now making uh, uh, endotyping uh, CSU project, uh, which we will dive into deep in the pathomechanism underlying the disease. Uh, we will endotype uh, CSU according to cytokines and autoantibodies and uh, different features of the disease. And also, uh, I have another project which is called the RIFA-CU. Uh, this project will reveal the differences between people who have urticaria and who do not have urticaria in terms of chronic diseases, habits, social situations, life events, procedures, medications, and also lifestyle that will bring out a lot of information on the risk factors for developing chronic urticaria, I guess. And uh, there are uh, also other UCARE projects, for example, CU Tiger, uh, that will reveal the treatment response rates between different endotypes of the disease. And it also seems uh, very exciting. 
So um, I, I just want to also emphasize the importance of UCARE centers. UCARE centers are the centers of uh, urticaria excellence and reference that are dedicated to a better management of chronic urticaria all around the world. Now we have more than 160 centers around the globe and uh, we are coming together in congresses. We are exchanging ideas. We are collecting patient data together. We are making projects that uh, have almost 3000 urticaria patients. So we are making a lot of information together and we are providing new insights into urticaria treatment. So uh, it is a very important network and uh, we hope that many of our colleagues uh, will be interested in becoming UCARE centers to learn uh, more about urticaria and to manage urticaria patients better. That's great. Sounds like endotypes are the future. So Professor Emek Kojaturk from the Institute of Allergology at Charité University, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Wow, that was amazing, Bianca. Emek is really just so knowledgeable about everything to do with chronic spontaneous urticaria and urticaria in general. Um, I think one of the things I found most interesting is how manageable this disease can be in the community. So Emic was saying that 50% of cases can be managed um, in primary care simply with antihistamines. And the key thing there is daily antihistamines um, rather than just as the need arises. And also to updose them. So don't be afraid to go to four antihistamines a day. And then the other thing that she said that really stuck with me was you know, it's not allergy. Chronic spontaneous urticaria is not an allergic reaction. An allergic reaction will only happen when you have that food or that drug. It'll be immediate and it won't happen without that food or that drug. So I suppose that's really key. Take a good history um, and, and don't forget chronic spontaneous urticaria in your differential diagnosis. I mean, she just had so much fantastic information there. She really did. And I think you're right in what you're saying about that it's not allergy. And it's important to reassure patients that it's not and there's not an underlying, you know, causative trigger that they might be looking for. And that it's really important to also reassure them that this isn't a life threatening condition, that it's not going to lead to anaphylaxis. And the other thing that I thought was fascinating was this situation with chronic spontaneous urticaria and mental health. And, you know, one which one precedes the other. It's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario. It really is. That's so interesting as well about that it's not going to lead to anaphylaxis. The amount of patients that I have that get swelling of their lips and are obviously and very, you know, understandably terrified by this. But if it is from chronic spontaneous urticaria, it will not lead to anaphylaxis. Really, really good point to hammer home. So I suppose that brings another episode to a close. Well, actually, I do have one more urticaria fact for you before we go. Did you know that humans aren't the only species to get chronic spontaneous urticaria? Oh, really? Okay, no, I didn't know that. Yep, uh, bees also get it. They're always developing hives. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness, Bianca, okay. Well, that is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> I love it. Right, on that note, don't forget that if you want to get in touch with us with comments or questions about the show, please email us at immunoteapodcast at gmail.com. That's immunotea spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at immunotea. Don't forget that's T-E-A. 
We'd like to thank our guest today, Professor Emek Kojaturk, our executive producer, Professor Niall Conlon, and our editor, Aidan McKelvey. This episode of Immunity was sponsored by The Farming Group. Thanks so much to you for listening, and we'll chat to you again next month. Goodbye for now.